Hello and welcome to the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast, episode number three today. We're going to talk a little bit about, about Ottavio Botecchia and the Versaleri. We talked about a little bit at the end of the last episode when we wrote out of the, read out of the Campagnola book. We're going to have a little story about the hot seat, being in the caravan as a mechanic. Um, we're going to read a little bit more out of our Campagnola book. And then we're going to talk about uh, the Buffalo Soldiers. So let's move on. Let's uh, get it started here. Um, so like I said, last time we finished with uh, st- uh, finished our Campagnola book talking about Ottavio Botecchia, uh, the first Italian to win the Tour de France, um, served in World War I on Italy's bike riding Bersaleri. Uh, the ba- bicycle he rode was fitted with a machine gun. Now, I love that they wrote that in this book, but I couldn't find any pictures of one mounted with a machine gun, but I uh, saw some with some rifles on them. But we'll just go with what they said for now. So a little bit more about uh, Ottavio Botecchia and the Bersaleri. So the Bersaleri are famous for their dramatic and extraordinary performances on the parade ground. They are an elite military unit sporting unique uniforms with 400, 400 feathers in their, in their helmets. Um, with uh, their wide-brimmed hats, but they're really kind of helmets, I believe. They are recognized for their quick high-stepping march. To witness one of their presentations is said to be an excellent experience. The Bersaleri are more than just a handsome facade. Besides their impressive ceremonial recitals, they are an aggressive, battle-hardened military fighting force. Uh, Founded in 1836 by Captain Alessandro de la Mamora, they became part of the Piedmontese military. Impressed with their might and mobility, King Charles Albert ordered the Bersaleri into the Royal Italian Army. On September 20th of 1870, they earned some notoriety when they seized Rome, freeing the city of the Pope's rule and further consolidating Italy's total unification. They are noted for their agility, sharpshooting skills, and tough physical standards. The Bosaleri are fierce fighters, not unlike the American Army Rangers, Green Berets, Navy SEALs, or the Air Force Special Tactics teams. They are capable of maneuvering as as rapid independent units. Their distinctive plumes worn in in the hat were once more than decorative. They served a military purpose, providing shade for the shooting eye of the marksman, camouflage for the rifleman, and before the days of helmets deflected the assault of many a saber blade. Currently, these same plumes are a badge of honor, attracting new recruits. So Ottavio Botecchia was, he joined the uh, Bersaleri in, uh, during uh, World War I. Uh, for four years, he ferried messages and supplies on the Austrian front with a special folding bicycle. During this time, he contracted malaria and also evaded capture several times. He endured, endured a gas attack in November of 1917 while providing covering fire for retreating forces. He was captured but later escaped he was awarded a bronze medal for valor. So I thought it was kind of uh, interesting to hear a little bit more about Ottavio Botecchia uh, because a lot of us might know him from uh, the bicycle that Greg LeMond won the time trial in in the tour on the Champs-Élysées to win the tour by eight seconds over Laurent Fignon. Uh, He was riding a Botecchia. So... That's kind of how I remember Botecchia, but this is a little bit more history. You know, I never knew he was in World War One, 
he was basically a war hero and he rode a bike. So there's that. Um, first Italian to win the tour. Um, and he also, the year before he won the tour, he rode the tour um, without a team and finished 11th. So um, pretty interesting story. Kind of uh, uh, one of the legends of cycling for sure. So kind of moving on, uh, we're going to read a little bit more out of the Campagnola book, talk a little bit about Gears and uh, uh, how that kind of came to be. So um, here we go. So direct experience, especially that of professional riders, has always been a, a decisive imp of decisive importance in modifications of the details of bicycles. As early as 1904, for example, the idea had arisen of creating some sort of device to hold a foot more securely on the pedal. In 1927, the leather toe clip became, came into being. In 1919, the Belgian racer Fermin Lambeau had been the first to eliminate the awkward leather foot bags, food bags attached to the front of the handlebars, which aside from everything else did little for the bike's aerodynamics. Instead, he made use of two flasks. Wonder what was in those. In 1939, René Vietto had the idea of hooking the flasks to the down tube of the frame in order to reach it more easily. It was also Vietto who had his bicycle shoes perforated to improve the airflow to his feet. The multiplicity of uses that had been found for bicycles, tourism, sport, work, sharpened the ingenuity of those who use them and manufacture them. Many of these efforts shared the same goal, to diminish the effort of pedaling. Not all roads are flat, and in countries like Italy and France, the roads were composed of a series of ups and downs, hills and also quite high mountains. Climbing a hill meant a great deal, meant a great deal of effort and something had to be done to ease the labors of the cyclists. In 1905, the writer and bicycle tourist Paul de Vivi undertook a trip over the Alps and invented a new system of derailleur. He mounted a second sprocket on the rear hub on the opposite side of the original sprocket. This second sprocket had two or three teeth more as to prove, provide the, mo the motive force needed for pedaling on a sense. To change from one sprocket to the other, the rider had to dismount, take the wheel off, and turn it so that the chain would run on the different sprocket. As so often happens with good new ideas, others sought to perfect the concept in pursuit of a machine that would change gears with less fuss. Claudius Boulier, for example, made several different versions of, the, of derailleurs over the course of the years. His most famous ad of ad adaptations were the La Cheminue, the Vagabond, mass-produced and commercialized by Johnny Pennell in 1911, and Le Cyclo, made by Albert Raymond in 1924. Professional racers were not permitted to use such ingenious devices. The prevailing philosophy, and it prevailed until the 1930s, was that of Descrande patron of the Tour de France and director of the magazine Lotto. He believed a sporting gesture had validity only if the athlete could count 
on nothing more than his own strength without the intervention of any sort of mechanical contraption. As he himself wrote, I still feel that variable gears are only for people over 45. Isn't it better to triumph by the strength of your muscles than by the artifice of a derailleur? We are getting soft. As for me, give me a fixed gear. In 1905, Degrange had introduced the Alps to the route of the tour. In 1910, he went ahead and added the Pyrenees. He had dispatched a representative to report on the conditions of those more or less uninhabited and inhospitable mountains. His name was Alphonse Steens. Steens spent many days struggling through the wild countryside, was forced to abandon his automobile and continue on foot, and while encountering endless difficulties, but in the end he telegraphed his boss, very good road. In truth, those mountain roads were disastrous mule tracks traversed with difficulty even by mountain goats or cows on their way to pasture. The bicycle racers who were forced to pedal over them experienced a kind of living hell, pushing this bike up the Col de la, la Bisque in the Pyrenees and on the, on the brink of a, a hysterical breakdown, Octave Lapise, who went on to win that Tour de France, caught sight of de Grange and screamed at him a phrase destined for, destined for tour history. Your murderers, vous en assassins. A look of sarcastic satisfaction is said to have crossed the face of the patron of the French race. The racers in the Giro d'Italia in 1914, perhaps the most grueling of the so-called heroic age of cycling, also found themselves on their feet pushing their bikes. The first stage of that race involving more than 400 kilometers made them cross Sestriere. There were 81 of them when the day set off, of whom 47 turned back. Gremo, Gan, Gerbi, Giardango had to push their bikes for kilometer after kilometer, climbing on foot through mud and snow. During this heroic age, bicycle racers, in part because of the ordeals they had to face, which seemed like punishments, were looked upon as supermen. In 1924, Albert Londre, a famous correspondent for a Parisian daily, referred to them instead as convicts of the road. He had just done a report on the forced labors of convicts in the penal colony in French Ghana. Sent to cover the Tour de France, he had found little difference between the inhumane conditions of the prisoners and those faced by the cyclists. Quite clearly, the situation could not be per permitted to continue forever, and it was not long before racers were given at least the opportunity to ease their they're pedaling by adding two or more sprockets to the rear hub so as to take on steeper ascents with less fatigue. This was in part to the result of the pressure from the bicycle industry, which wanted to see more official recognition given to the contributors made by specific bicycles in the glor glorious deeds performed by riders. Not all bicycles are equal, and the bicycle strength and reliability were often of decisive importance. There remained the fact that to change gears, the riders had to get off his bike, release the rear wheel by twisting the wing nuts of the hub, spin the wheel around, then remount it. 
fitting the chain to the sprocket and then redoing all the wing nuts, both the wing nuts. It was a complicated operation that often had to performed, be performed under rain or snow or worse, and each time the result remained uncertain. It wasn't rare that after a few spins of the pedal, the chain came loose. So, so things stood in 1927, the year of Tullio Campagnolo's day in the snow on the Croteun, the event that led to his quick-release hub, the first milestone in an authentic technological revolution. So I'd like to change gears a little bit, so to speak, and we're going to, uh, our next, my next little segment here is about uh, being in the caravan, um, being a mechanic in the caravan. I titled this one, The Hot Seat. So being the person in the hot seat is really like nothing else uh, we encounter as a, as a tech. Um, nothing like going from being asleep to jumping out of your follow car to do a wheel change as quick as possible. Um, while you may spend two to six hours or more in the follow car, the moments of chaos probably will only take up a very small percentage of that time. But when the shit hits the fan, you'd better be ready. <laughs> well, the, while the most common occurrence, or mechanical, uh, if you will, will be a flat tire, and the worst, in my mind, of all is the crash, or worse yet, the team time trial crash, especially when it involves the need for a bike change. Um, with professional teams with big budgets, uh, each racer probably has their own spare bike, um, with uh, the team leader's bike being the easiest to get to, which will be the one on the race ready or on the end of the rack, uh, usually uh, with the front wheel on already and just require um, just undoing a couple straps to get it down uh, to, that, to that racer. So... Um, then the other bikes that are going to be on there for your for your domestiques are going to kind of be kind of more inward um on the car and the you know the one usually there's usually a bike like right in the middle there's like five bikes kind of on the top of the car a lot of times um and then there's one right in the middle and you just have to hope that you don't have to get that one down during a race because it's not fun So you'll also have a couple of pairs of wheels inside the car, uh, one pair right next to you, so you can grab them really quick uh, as you exit the car when you need to. Uh, also, in my time in the caravan, I would wear a fanny pack. I think a lot of the mechanics then did. Um, fanny pack, not the most uh, fashion-forward uh, piece of uh, equipment you'll be wearing, but it's got all the tools you might need um, for before the race and during the race if you need them. So I, I hear that, that currently uh, techs often have a power tool of some kind for the through-axle uh, wheels that are out there now versus uh, the quick releases that uh, I used to deal with. Um, you'll also probably have your uh, toolbox in the back as well, um, even though in my days in the follow car, I didn't think I ever opened it during a race, but you know you might need it before the race and then you just like to keep it with you. Um, and kind of just a few of the mechanicals I serviced during my days were um, kind of as follows in no particular order. Um, flat tire, broken spoke, broken bike, broken chain, broken crank, uh, bent handlebars usually during a crash or broken handlebars, uh, rolled tire usually from a crash or, you know, that's, that's a real bad one. Uh, derailed chain, uh, broken rear derailleur, 
Um, a lot of broken stuff. A lot of the stuff would, we're talking about broken here would happen during a crash, either by themselves, uh, or just the rider going down, or maybe a multiple uh, uh, racer pileup. Um, flat tire was the most common, and that's probably the only one uh, other than a, a self-induced crash that wasn't really looked down upon uh, as a mechanic because um, you don't have a lot of control over that. Um, so every race is a little bit different. Uh, sometimes there are no mechanicals. And sometimes uh, it would seem as if someone messed with the bikes the night before, you know, night before after you clean, cleaned them up and tuned them. Um, so I, I remember a race in Pittsburgh, the Thrift Drug Classic, uh, when it seemed we had more than more than six mechanicals in just the first two laps of a multi-lap uh, race. Um, two crashes, I think. Uh, we had four flats, uh, broken freewheel, um, all in like 20 minutes. Um, after the fourth uh, call for service, my team director looked at me and said, uh, we're not having a very good day. Uh, he was somewhat laughing when he said it, but we were both also thinking, uh, when will this end? Uh, by the end of the day, uh, we won the race, and it was a great victory because it was uh, an Olympic uh, trials race. Um, that's just the way it, it goes sometimes in the caravan. You're down, uh, then you're up, and the other way around sometimes. Um, most of the time, you just uh, sit and listen to the race radio and listen for your team name to be called for uh, service or feeding or to hear if your racers are in a breakaway or not. Um, uh, your, your attention will offer, often differ uh, from a stage race um, to a, a one-day event or a team time trial or an individual time trial, um, depending on how your team is doing. Uh, once in France... Um, with the national team, uh, by the final four stages of the Tour de l'Avenir, we had uh, only one racer left. Uh, we had a director, a Swanier, and a mechanic for one racer. Uh, it was sad, but we still had one racer toughing it out and in the sideways reign of Brittany, so we supported him and finished it out. Um, to me, the most scary event is the team time trial. First of all, the bikes are crazy contraptions with different size wheels and really set up uh, most of the time to just go as fast as possible in mostly a straight line. Consider that along with the fact that most racers don't spend a lot of time on a time trial bike. So six to eight racers drafting off each other at high speed, trying to stay as close as possible is kind of a recipe, recipe for disaster. Uh, a touch of the wheels and it's a yard sale that you uh, you as the mechanic will need to clean up and clean it up fast. Um, I've followed a few team time trials uh, when it's over. The relief you feel as a mechanic is, is quite amazing. Um, the individual time trial can be very intense as well, but mostly for your time trial specialist or for a racer leading or, or near the top of the uh, general classification in a stage race. Um, all in all time in the follow car is also sometimes relaxing, like during a really long race, once the craziness of the start is over, it's, and the racing begins, um, you can actually maybe sleep a little bit, but with one ear open, listen to that race radio. Uh, but you'll always have uh, one ear open, um, so that when your comfy seat becomes the hot seat, you gotta be ready. <laughs> So for our, our last segment here, I'd like to do kind of a, tell a, a, this kind of a fun story. Um, 
very interesting. Uh, came across this recently. It's uh, it's a story about uh, the Buffalo Soldiers uh, who rode bikes, and Buffalo Soldiers were African American soldiers who mainly served uh, the Western frontier following the Civil War. Um, their main tasks were to help control the Native Americans of the plains, capture cattle rustlers, thieves, um, and protect settlers, stagecoaches, wagon trains, and railroad rail um, road crews along the Western Front. It's not known for certain why the Native Americans dubbed them the Buffalo Soldiers. So before I get into the article here um, from um, from a, a, a history uh, uh, internet site, I would like to just bring uh, the fact out that uh, the Buffalo Soldier, the song, there's actually a song written by uh, Bob Marley talking about the Buffalo Soldiers, which is, is kind of cool because I never, I had heard the song before, but I didn't really know the story. So, um, so let's get on with it. Uh, the Buffalo Soldiers um, who rode bikes, and it's is kind of early bikepacking, if you will. So this story is, uh, just to give credit, it is off of history.net. Um, so here we go. Uh, tired and hungry, their bright blue army-issued blouses tattered and wet from rain and snow, the men of the 25th In Infantry Regiment reached Alliance, Nebraska on July 4th, 1897. They had covered 1,000 miles in 21 days, have mastered the Rockies, crossed the Yellowstone and Little Bighorn Rivers, and surmounted drifts of hail said to be fully eight feet high. The 20 Buffalo soldiers led by second Lieutenant James A. Moss still had another 900 miles to go, including a grueling 200 mile trek through Nebraska's notorious sand hills. Each man carried his own rations, cooking utensils, blanket, tent, and other necessities, rarely toted by soldiers in the American West. Extra parts, for needed repairs and spare tires. Yes, tires, because these St. Louis-bound soldiers from Fort Missoula, Montana, were sitting on tall bicycle seats, not saddles. The 25th was one of four regiments of black soldiers enacted by Congress in 1866 and led by white officers. The U.S. Army had established Fort Missoula, now part of the city of Missoula, in 1877, and the men of the 25th first arrived there in May 1888. Eight years later, Major General Nelson Miles gave Lieutenant Moss, optimistic in his view of modernizing the Army, permission to organize the 25th Infantry Bicycle Corps to test the practicality of the bicycle for military use in the mountain, mountainous country. Moss, a Louisiana native, and West Point graduate wanted to show that cycling was faster than marching and cheaper than traveling on horseback. In early August 1896, he and eight volunteers, including trusted Sergeant Mingo Sanders, made their first excursion, pedaling north to McDonald Lake in the Mission Mountains, a four-day, 126-mile round trip. Later that summer, Moss led a 23-day, 800-mile bicycle trek from Fort Missoula to Yellowstone National Park and back again. Again and again, he would stop along the road and look at paint pots, pools, springs, geysers, etc. Moss later recalled one particularly fine day in the park. Riding through the Gibbon Meadows, we then turned off into Gibbon Canyon, deep, sinuous, and picturesque. For miles, we fared 
along the winds of the road, the windings of the road with the ever beautiful waters of the Gibbon River at our side. Now admiring this, then admiring that. Indeed, this was the very poetry of cycling. While both 1896 jaunts were successful, Moss realized he must try a longer, more grueling trek to prove the true worth of the bicycle. In 1897, the 1897 trip to St. Louis, about 1,900 miles one way, was the ultimate test ride. Moss didn't dream up the bicycle idea in a vacuum. A cycling craze was sweeping the nation. In 1880, enthusiasts had formed the League of American Wheelmen, which lobbied for road improvements and promoted the advantages of the bicycle. The invention of the safety bicycle, sporting two wheels of equal size, provided the catalyst to power the craze. Safety bicycles were easier to ride and safer than the earlier cumbersome penny farlings, with one large wheel and one small one. In 1895, Theodore Roosevelt, then president of the Board of New York City Police Commissioners, created what became known as the Scorcher Squad, a unit of 28 police bicyclists who pursued runaway horses and nabbed reckless carriage drivers. By that time, the cycling phenomenon had carried into the Rockies, the bicycles were the talk of the town in Missoula. Half of the people at the fort are on bicycles, and a person without a wheel is out of the times, as it were, the Daily Missoulian reported in the spring of 1894. Military use of the bicycle dated back to the early 18, as early as 1886, when Germany field-tested a bicycle corps. At first, it was just a courier service, but the German army later mounted orderly scouts, shock troops, and shock troops on bicycles. By the time the 25th Infantry Bicycle Corps was tested, this new mode of transport, other European nations, England and France among them, had followed Germany's lead and were using bicycles for certain military functions. It helped that the roads in Europe were much kinder to two-wheeled vehicles than the largely primitive roads in the American West. A.G. Spalding and Company of Chicopee Falls, Massachusetts, made the bicycles for the 25th expedition to St. Louis, just as it had for the 1896 trials. The company was at the forefront of bicycle design. Built to Moss's specifications to handle the rigors of the road, its military two-wheelers were fitted with steel rims, puncture-proof tires, reinforced forks, and enclosed gear cases that protected the chain from the dust and debris. Each bike weighed 32 pounds riderless. While the army and the men of the 25th approached the long journey as a test, Spalding sees it as an opportunity to showcase its bicycles. Moss and the Buffalo Soldiers, accompanied by post-surgeon James M. Kennedy and Daily Missoulian reporter Edward Booz, left for Fort Missoula at dawn, June 14, 1897. At midday, heavy rain pelted the riders and the the next afternoon, bad roads and another downpour forced them off their bicycles to slog along on foot, an inauspicious beginning to their overland odyssey. On their fourth day out, as the men climbed into the Rockies, rain turned to blinding snow, and they couldn't see past 20 feet. The steep descent presented more danger. Moss and his men had to walk their bicycles, all the while digging in their heels, lest they lose their footing and plummet downslope. Surely they must have breathed a collective sigh of relief once the Continental Divide was behind them, but more challenges lay ahead. 
Stretches past Montana's Beaver Creek were impassable, com compelling the soldiers to shoulder their loaded bicycles. In the, in the Gallatin Valley, overflowing wastewater from roadside irrigation di ditches splattered, splattered the soldiers' boots. As the riders approached Bozeman, many took to what Booz described as a head, header over the handlebars on a deeply rutted descent, descent. In big timber, an old Union veteran insisted every trooper have a drink on him. While riding between towns, the Corps, by necessity, dispensed with any semblance of formation. Each rider pedaled a path that suited him. Some caught a wagon wheel rut and stayed with it, while others steered a zigzag pattern to avoid rocks. The line of troops often strung out, opening up miles between the lead rider and the last straggler. But before entering each town, the men would regroup and strike formation to emphasize they were a military unit and not just a bunch of bicyclists roaming the land. Booz painted a colorful picture of the procession. Hot and flashing storms beset the men, mud-covered wheels until they were discs of gumbo, and rumors of rattlesnakes broke up uncomfortable camp and started the line in the middle of the night. Moss also kept a journal, a journal on the trek. Each soldier strapped his knapsack, blanket roll, and tent to the head of his bike, his haversack to the horizontal bar. Every other soldier carried a carbine strapped horizontally to the bike's two upright bars, while the alternating riders hauled canvas-covered boxes with extra supplies. Quartermaster units had placed food drops every 100 miles, but the riders soon discovered that two days' supply of rations provided just four meals, not six, which only left the handlebar infantry with hunger pangs. From, ca from camp on June 24th, Moss reported the men had ridden 42 miles on a cup of wheat coffee, partially sweetened, and a small piece of burnt bread. On June 25th, its 12th day on the road, the column reached the Little Bighorn Resting amid the ghosts of George Custer's 7th U.S. Cavalry on the anniversary of its infamous defeat. The next several days brought fair weather, inspiring the men to pedal at a quickened pace. They made good time across the northeast Wyoming and through the southwest corner of South Dakota to the Nebraska state border. There, however, they faced the dreaded sand hills, a soft, shifting mass of sand. Booz wrote that compelled them to follow the railroad tracks that paralleled their route. As they thumped along the cross ties, jarring their, their wrists, shoulders, and backs, they faced temperatures up to 110 degrees. Adding to their misery, drinking water tint cultured with alkali soon had three quarters of the troop doubled over sick. Moss himself was bedridden for four days, leaving the troop in Dr. Kennedy's temporary command. Road conditions continued to vex the cyclists. Moss wrote that roads they encountered were often a disgrace to civilization, while Booz added, the only choice of roads narrowed to bad ones and others that were worse. Regardless, the column rolled along through such Nebraska burgs as Broken Bow, Germantown, today's Garland, and Lincoln. Somewhere in Missouri, Booz asked a farmer for permission to camp on his land, and the man asked, asked whether they were Union soldiers. Why, I guess we are, the reporter replied. Though three decades had passed since the Civil War, 
then you can pile right off of this land. The farmer snapped back as the cyclist moved on. A voice called out, you can camp down there below the pigsty. Moss and his men decided to push on. On the rainy, mor rainy morning of July 24th, the 25th Infantry Bicycle Corps rolled across a railroad bridge on the Missoula River at St. Charles. The clouds soon broke and they covered the last few rough miles to St. Louis under a broiling sun. On the city outskirts, hundreds of local cyclists pedaled out to greet them and form an escort. At 6.30 that evening, after 40 days and 1,900 miles, the trek officially ended. Moss was pleased with the results. The troop has averaged 6.3 miles an hour, nearly 50 miles each day. Over the next week, bicycle clubs feted the Buffalo soldiers and the color barrier seemed to evaporate. Moss wanted to further test the Corps before returning to Missoula, but Major General Miles, while applauding the gung-ho lieutenant for a job well done, remained unconvinced of the military value of a bicycle corps. Absorbed in Indian matters, he ordered the 25th back to Montana by rail. The Buffalo soldiers, according to Private Richard Rout, still had those trying Nebraska sandhills on their minds and were happy to board the train. Although, although disheartened, Moss did not lose confidence. The trip has proven beyond pre-adventure my contention that the bicycle has a place in modern warfare, the lieutenant told the Army and Navy Journal that summer. In every kind of weather, all sorts of roads, we averaged nearly 50 miles a day. Moss further pressed his cause in the interview. The practical result of the trip shows that an Army Bicycle Corps can travel twice as fast as cavalry or infantry under any conditions. And, and at one-third the cost and effort. The bicycle suffered damage to the tune of 17 tires and a half a dozen broken frames, frames which seemed reasonable given the demanding ground the riders covered. But the Corps, the Corps quickly handled most of their own repairs thanks to Private John Findlay, who had spent four years as a mechanic for Ames and Frost Imperial Bicycle Works in Chicago. If a disabled bike needed more work, Findlay would give up his own wheels to a rider so the column could continue. Once he had completed the repairs, Finley would, would pedal the repaired bike like a demon to catch up with the others. In an age when cavalry remained in use, Moss underscored the bicycle's clear advantages over the horse. It does not require as much care, he explained. It moves much faster over fair roads and can be hidden from sight more easily. It is, it is noiseless and raises little but dust and it is impossible to tell the direction from its tracks. He concluded, under favorable conditions, the bicycle is invaluable for courier work, scouting duty, road patrolling, rapid reconnaissance, etc. Moss did include caveats to his official report. He emphasized that each rider, not every other one, should have a carbine strap to his bicycle. Brakes should be mandatory to avoid those header over handlebar spills. He advocated some sort of shock-absorbing device on the handlebars to reduce the pounding riders took on the bicycles. Moss also pressed for increased rations and suggested that when traveling over harsh terrain, the soldiers should dismount and walk their bicycles in formation. Despite Moss's convictions, the Bicycle Corps went the route of the U.S. Camel Corps nowhere. In the mid-1850s, Secretary of War Jefferson Davis had peddled the idea of using camels on military campaigns in the desert southwest.
and the army had actually imported a number of humpback beasts. But with the outbreak of the Civil War and the experiment, the experiment unraveled and the camels were left to roam the desert. After the 1897 Bicycle Corps expedition to St. Louis, Moss was less willing to turn the 25th wheeled mounts out to pasture. In 1898, he was in the planning stages of another bicycle mission from Fort Missoula to San Francisco, when the army suspended further tests due to the brewing conflict with Spain. Indeed, the Spanish-American War broke out that April, and the army sent the 25th Infantry to serve in Cuba, but not on bicycles. The U.S. Army did adopt two-wheeled vehicle in 1913 and 1916, an expeditionary force under Brigadier General John J. Blackjack Pershing used that same vehicle to hunt Pancho Villa in Mexico. It was called the motorcycle. Well, that's the story of the Buffalo soldiers that rode bicycles. And I hope you enjoyed that story. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And we will see you again in a couple of weeks. So until then, keep on riding. And don't forget to email with any questions or concerns to the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast at gmail.com or Check us out on Instagram at the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast.